2: Well, welcome to a new season of Soul by Todd Richards. Uh, this is season two. Uh, I would say this is season two, but it's uh, probably COVID four season. Just to give uh, listeners an uh, understanding where we are. Uh, we're in this Delta variant. Uh, we've seen a lot of things happen in our country both uh, positive and negative. And we're looking forward to really still discussing the impact of African-American cooking, uh, Afro cooking, Afro cuisine, and also better understanding how we can move food forward and all give us a place at the table And for this season, um, I'm really just happy to have so many more friends uh, here. Uh, You know, last season I had a lot of friends join me and it was great. But this one I'm exploring even more and, and really diving, you know, way deeper into the waters to understand how we got to this place, how we can be better in this place and what's the future, not only for ourselves as chefs, restaurateurs, owners, farmers, fishermen, uh, cattle, ranchers. But how can we make this world a better place? I'm, I'm really proud to have on uh, season two, first episode, my great friend, uh, Kevin Mitchell. And Kevin and I go way back. Uh, I, I, like I always say, anybody knows me, I like to drink a lot of whiskey. So uh, we go back, but our livers go back even further. And it's really great to, to have Kevin Mitchell on board. Kevin, welcome to Soul by Todd Richards.
3: Oh, oh good afternoon! Thanks for having me.
2: Well, it's my my pleasure. You're in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, which has a a storied uh, history. But you know, give some people some quick background on on your food, where you come from, why Charleston, and and why do you love to cook?
0: Oh
3: well, my food is well. Everyone knows I'm a Chef instructor at the Conner Institute of Charleston, um, here in Charleston, South Carolina, Um, and my journey to to Charleston just comes through working in several different aspects of the industry, Um, hotels, university dining. I was a chef at Cornell University for a couple years. I worked Starwood Hotels, which is of course now Marriott, and opened up hotels throughout the country for the company and um <clears throat> I worked for MGM uh, Detroit Hotel and Casino and my journey to to Charleston started in 2008 when I was recruited by the Culinary Institute of Charleston to be its very first African American chef instructor of which I'm still <laughs> the only only one after almost 13 years but the the journey here just just came from wanting to getting to a place where i felt like i could give back and that meant teaching future chefs and when the opportunity came um for one wanting to get out of the the snow and the cold of detroit michigan uh,
2: the <laughs> sorry, opportunity further
3: <laughs> you of the yeah. offer chicago and you know and where yeah. does not land
2: in chicago goes uh, go yeah. through, go to detroit so i understand yeah. that
3: yeah definitely so um Wanting them wanting to to have a, a African-American chef instructor, of course, to have someone at the school that looked like the student population, um, our student population for African-American and even minority students uh, was coming in well over 40 percent. And they never had a, a African-American chef instructor. And I came to visit. I fell in love with the city of course, um, fell in love with the history of the city as it relates to food. And, um, like I said, I've been here ever since, since, you know, December of 2008. And through, throughout my, my time here, um, I've just, you know, kind of elevated and moved into many different, um, aspects of really trying to understand the food of Charleston, Uh, By, for one, becoming a South Carolina chef ambassador, Um, uh, mostly important to me was, you know, the recreation of the Nat Fuller dinner, which was a dinner held here in 1865, where a formerly enslaved chef who became one of the greatest black caterers in the city hosted a dinner at the end of the Civil War to um, celebrate equality and of course in the spirit of reconciliation so for the very first time in this city you know blacks and whites being able to to break bread in the same in the same place Mm. um, was very important and from that that dinner really opened up this this kind of chasm for me to really try to understand and research who were these other chefs, whether they were formerly enslaved or even freed um, chefs and cooks who basically lay the groundwork for, you know, what we know of today as
2: as Southern food. I mean, you, you bring up so many uh, other questions. Oh, my goodness. I mean, we only have about 45 minutes here, but we have so many questions here. So, Kevin, you know, you were talking about the area of black and white and uh, one thing that we found in this country that black and white has always been the divide. Uh, no one wants to live in the gray. Uh, our food uh, is not in the gray. When you talk about Southern versus soul or Southern versus any other American dish or even soul versus Caribbean or, or, or Latin influenced food. What is the similarities you find in these in these cuisines of America that you really started your research with?
3: Uh, For me, it always starts with um, the ingredients. Um, We all use the ingredients in many dishes. Um, The one, I guess, difference would be how we use those ingredients. Um, But the major similarity, of course, for me, has always been about the people who who was cooking the food? Uh, whether it was enslaved Africans, African Americans, those from the Caribbean, and so on and so forth, that's where the similarity is. And I think a lot of people look at our food or this food in a very convoluted sense, where it 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 has no um, eloquence, I guess I would say, because you know we always think of French cuisine, or we always admire Italian cuisine or some of the other cuisines of the world, and it never really put southern food, soul food, um, Gullah Geechee food, wh- whichever you want to call it, on the same pedestal as those very well-known and respected foods.
2: You know, you know, we're going to talk about Gullah Geechee um, later on, especially with you in Charleston. But I, I really want to dive deeper into what you were just saying about the respect of food. And, and why that's so important to me is that, you know, of course, I'm writing a new book. You wrote uh, a, a great book that that is uh, being released very, very soon. And I'm proud to, you know, to even, you know, read the back page of it. And for those who don't know, the name of the book is Taste the South, South Carolina signature foods, recipes, and their stories. And food itself is just telling a story of people. It's telling a journey of people. Uh, you know, what is this commonplace of, of food that tells this journey that, you know, the ultimate outcome of your book uh, that you want people to reach? Uh well,
3: when when people read this book, I I definitely want them to to understand the food. I mean, we're focused, we focus mainly in on South Carolina, but of course, South Carolina is you no know, definitely part of the South. So we want people to really understand where, where this food comes from. We want people to understand the, the ingredients, you know, cause the, the book is, is about dishes as well as ingredients and, and get them to understand that what, the connection of these ingredients mean to not only people from South Carolina, but people from the South, right? And so people also have to understand, once again, that the the connection to those ingredients, to those dishes, come from the connection with the people that cook those foods, whether it's today whether it's
2: 1800 or whether it's 1600 let let me let me let me ask you a question though because you're talking about today and 1600s but are are the ingredients that much different are are the techniques that much different you know you you and I go way back and I talk about techniques more than anything else I can walk into anybody's kitchen and cook because I talk about techniques Mm -hmm. are the techniques uh any different uh from in your research of this book where the modern table may not understand it because I believe that when you talk about the Carolina gold rice or the pigeon peas or, or, or Sea Island red peas and things like that, that I don't think that people they, they might think they're foreign, but they don't understand that the technique might also get them there to have delicious food.
3: Well, yeah, definitely. I think, I think with anything, of course, techniques have, have always evolved. And, you know, when you talk about, technique in your sense i i see and i notice how you take take those techniques and evolve from what the original thing would have been and you mentioned rice i mean we know there's numerous ways to to cook rice and you know carolina gold specifically one of the things that you mentioned is you know it's i always you know tease people you know Rice can be a very hard thing to cook, even though it's a very simple ingredient to work with. But you know, as it relates to the Gullah Geechee people, you 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 have to understand the technique of rinsing the rice. You know, and it's not just rinsing the rice three times; it's six, seven, eight times, depending on you know how much starches in in you know in that rice. So, I think the techniques. Change, but they still always remain the same. And if you, and as you know, and we know as chefs, if you understand the the technique and also understand the ingredient and where it comes from, there's you know there's no way you you won't be able to to cook you know a beautiful pot of
2: Carolina gold rice. Oh, wow, you, you, you know what, what I find so fascinating about this is is, is just talking about rice and that you know we look at instant rice and instant rice uh, takes 5 minutes to cook but carolina gold rice can take 40, 40 minutes yep. to cook and the washing of it can be so so different that's why uh, you and I are both fans of, of, of Iron Chef, uh, especially Iron Chef, you know, Japanese. And you can see how in our in, in first Iron Chef Japanese, uh, Machiba, you know, he would have uh, the traditional uh, cast iron pot with the bamboo on top of cook it that way. And you saw the progression to always in where he would have a rice cooker out and things like that. So we understand that there's a progression. But like, how is it that in our community that... Uh, In that progression, we might have lost flavor in the sense that something might become instant, may not be the Best in result that remind us of our grandmothers, great grandmothers, our grandparents, or that table at you know at the, the church social and things like that. How do we lose our, our, that part of the culture in the technique? Which I really think that when I read your you know your book and everything you saw me, I saw you really telling that story in more depth detail.
3: Yeah, I think losing those those stories, those techniques, come through. For one, I believe it's up to people like you and I to to continue to educate people on those techniques and, and on those you know old ways of doing things. Because once again, what is new is is old, or what is old is new. Um, I think it just becomes a thing of of not being educated. And of course, you know, throughout time, we we've become um, a you know a a people of of convenience everything has to happen right away and you mentioned instant rice and you know anyone of course can go in and you know cook some instant rice or i mean you you know now you can buy you know ben's favorite in in a bag and microwave it in a a minute and a half you have (laughs) you have rice that you can eat i think we we've lost we've lost the the education piece and through that we've just lost you know the i won't let's say i'm not and i won't say respect in a bad way but we've just lost the respect for how those ingredients were were handled years ago and you know we once again it's it's just being in this, this this stage of you know, wanting things right then and there. And, you know, life moves really fast. And, you know, you, you know, mothers come home and they have, you know, 15 minutes to get some food on the table for their children. And, and this is what we kind of morph into by using those, you know, the minute rice or the boiling bag rice and or, you know, the, the easy
2: microwave. <laughs> right. well, I mean, but, you know, what? I, I, I'm not going to uh, be hypocritical. Yeah. That, you know, that in the same token that uh, my mom, you know, in a pinch will make, you know, the, the box macaroni and cheese yeah. uh, and, and, and powdered cheese. And I am like, you know, how can I be hypocritical in that same sense where if I eat potato chips, you know, like the sour cream and cheddar potato chips and that cheese powder is the same cheese powder that, you know, that is used on on macaroni and cheese. I mean, when you really think about it that way, so you can go to a a baseball game, basketball game, you know, eat a bag of chips and be like, you know, these chips are great, but I can't put it on mac and cheese. Are, Are we not... Really looking at our cuisine full circle as how, you know, convenience or migration from one side of the country all the way to California, even up there where Eduardo is in Seattle. Are we not looking at the techniques of, you know, the industrial revolution or things like that as a catalyst to understand how, you know, this food of soul has become a much better food uh, moving forward?
3: Well, yeah, I, I, I definitely think we don't, you know, for me, I've always it's always a thing of looking looking back, looking to the past, um, in order to to progress and in order to know where we're going. So, you know, I know it's well, at times it could be hard to to really look to the past because once again, where where we are in the world today and and all the things that are happening. In the world, you know, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's, you know, racial unrest, it's so many different things. And, you know, I think, you know, we we get so caught up in those things that it's hard for us to really take the time to to look back and, you know, go into a book and say, you know, how how was rice cooked in the eighteen hundreds and how has it changed from eighteen hundred to twenty twenty one? Um, in some respects, yes, because we have instant, but no, because we still have people, specifically you and me and other chefs who who hold on to that tradition and hold on to wanting to bring that or bring that forward and, and mm-hmm. still educate and mm-hmm. still teach people to say, Yeah, it's great that you can throw this pouch in the microwave for a minute and a half but it's really great when you sit down to a, a bowl of rice or anything and you've taken the, the 45 minutes <laughs> right. the hour whether it's <laughs> rice uh, even grits too like we take that time you know and you get so much satisfaction from you know you may not be it may not be satisfying you in the moment where you're like, man, this thing's been on here for an hour. When can I sit down and eat? But when you finally sit down and eat that pot of rice or that bowl of grits or whatever, it it's, just, it's a satisfaction that for me doesn't really compare to popping that stuff in the
2: microwave. We're about two minutes from taking a break here, but there's just one item that I want to talk about in rice. And you said grits and, and, you know, people always ask me why my grits are so good because I take a whisk and sit there and stir them all day, you know, just the same way making risotto. But there is a fallacy in harvest rice that we overlook which I believe is the best part of rice is when those grains are broken. Everyone looks for perfection in, in things like rice, but those broken grains have so much different texture. When we, when we equate that to something like soul food, where you're taking these scraps of things and we all know the price of oxtails right now is as much as flat iron, where it used to be 99 cents a pound and now, you know, oxtails are 7.95 a pound, flat iron steak is 7.95 a pound. Uh, And most people don't even know how versatile flat iron steak is in the sense that you can braise it or you can do it as a steak. Uh, Why, or let me ask it differently. How can we make sure that we we are telling the true story of things that are broken that we fix in order to make uh, soul, uh, Caribbean, Afro, a true American cuisine, just as we're talking about jazz, uh, rock and roll and hip hop?
3: Well, well, definitely it starts with things like this, this, this podcast and it starts with education it starts with you know just people like you and I and other chefs really talking about what what is important to to you know the to the <clears throat> tradition of our food and definitely what's important to holding on to those traditions and in getting people to want to of course follow those traditions right we cuz of course time changes and and things change and you got technology and you got all these things happening. And once again, it's convenient, it's fast. And we have to hold true and and teach, you know, the chefs that are coming. Well, the chefs and the cooks that are coming behind us to say, yes, once again, this is great that we can have rice in two minutes or grits in five, but let's focus in on what really makes our food, what our food is. And, it's it's up to us to continue to push the envelope, to continue to, you know, beat down the doors, so to speak, and 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 talk about it, so that our cuisine will be or can be put up on that pedestal and respected, like French cuisine, like Italian cuisine, where we know, you know, chefs we know where a lot of that food comes from, and it comes from the same traditions that that we have used, but it for some reason it just seems like it's it's put in this this light where it's very exclusive and it's very high profile and you know making rice is something that is not. But we know that even specifically here in Charleston, mm-hmm. Charleston doesn't become Charleston without the cultivation of rice, and even French planters who lived in this area, who may have ate, eaten classical French cuisine every night at cooked by formerly enslaved people or enslaved people, that there was always a pot of rice on the table mm. with them. Right. So, how can how can our food not be elevated to to where it should be based on our history, based on the facts, based on what chefs are doing? Or we doing then and what chefs are doing now.
2: I, I, I really understand that so much. I I we have to take a pause here. I mean, I, I don't want to, but we we have to take a pause here because I, I really want to talk about what you're saying about just in rice in general and and in your your book as well, and really explore deeper into the technique of food and talk about culinary instructors, because I, I really believe um, in the next you know uh, next segment, we have to dive deeper into that because I believe that there's been such a backlash against culinary instructors that if you don't have someone instructing someone how to cook food, uh, who's going to cook the food? Mm-hmm. So you're, you're listening to Soul by Chef Todd Richards. Welcome back to the show by Chef Todd Richards. I'm glad to have one of my dearest and closest friends, a great culinary and, and really one of the most outstanding cooks that I know, uh, Chef Kevin Mitchell out of Charleston, South Carolina. And you're probably more nationally and even internationally known uh, in the world uh, right now than just saying Charleston. And I don't want to diminish, diminish Charleston, but, but Kevin has uh, just released a book called Taste uh, the state, South Carolina signature food recipes, and their stories. And, and really, you know, our first segment, we're talking about the stories and the stories tying into, you know, basic of uh, the techniques. But what makes food signature? You know, we talk about rice, grits, things like that. But what makes uh, food signature to a group of people first is is my first question. And maybe uh, my second question is, is how do we share it amongst people in order to find that appreciation of that signature dish?
3: Well, I think flavor um, for one makes, for me makes something signature. Um, When we look at kind of the evolution of rice we you know we always go back to rice or um corn as it relates to grits you know the flavor of rice in the 1800s you know is it is either it could be transported to what we know today as rice right we know we have ben's favorite we have all these other brands of rice but true we have to go back to the source. And that is, of course, the Carolina gold, you know, the, the strands of rice that come to us from Africa. Um, Also, you know, when we speak of Asia as well, but in, in Southern food, we're always of course looking at those um, strands or strains that come from Africa. So I think, you know, the flavor and always keeping or holding true to, what the original flavor of that particular ingredient
2: was. Right? Let, yeah. let, me, let, me you, let me ask you a question right quick and I apologize. Uh, but you said something about the original flavor was something was, and I have to ask a, a, a more uh, clearer question is, is how do you know, how do you know in the depth of your soul what the original flavor was? Well,
3: you have to, I mean, you have to get it from that ingredient, rice, if we want to specifically talk about rice, we have to get it from someone that is producing and cultivating that original strand, you know, that original seed that was brought over with enslaved people to this country, right? And we have to. Of course, have or build that relationship with these producers, cultivators, purveyors who are, you know, really involved in really telling the story of true Carolina Gold rice or true Sea Island red peas, and it's the sharing of those stories and tasting and understanding what the flavors are. I mean, of course, you know, we we won't always know what rice tasted like in 1800 but we do know what rice was produced in 1800 and we do know the story of what the rice was and how we lost it you know specifically here through the Civil War the Civil War destroyed all the rice plantations in 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 the specifically in Charleston or in the south and then of course we have the onset of Uncle Ben's or Ben's favorites, that comes a lot later after the civil war so Mm -hmm. i think it's it's always about research um understanding the, the flavor profile you know always working with those producers who are you know a part of this revival of bringing back these old grains whether it's rice whether it's specific types of corn to make grits Or you mentioned Sea Island Red Peas, Black Eyed Peas, Field Peas, Crowder Peas, all these things that, you know, seem to have disappeared. But I think the great thing is they're coming back, like through companies like Anson Mills and Marsh Hen Mills here in in South Carolina as well, where, you know, and then, of course, we have to encourage chefs to want to serve these products in on their menus, in
2: their restaurants. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 absolutely. Um, I, I don't want to stray too far away from the original question, but this question is probably just going to tie that question uh, mm-hmm. up. It is And you say something about chefs doing it. Uh, and the, the reach is that, you know, the chefs are the experts, um, but the consumers are, are the ones who uh, have to understand it where have we uh, lost our way in some of this? And the reason why I'm asking this is not to have a, a you know, a sit here and say, you know, that, that, you know, we didn't do things right. Yeah. It's more of a pathway of saying what we're going to do in the future in order to make you know this food stand out more. How we're going to unite uh, Afro cuisine throughout the world? Uh, only in this country do we talk about ourselves in minority uh, aspects, you where know, everywhere else we so, you know we're a majority, but not in the sense of negativity where we're saying we're better. The saying that we are equal to and we, we produce great food. In mm-hmm. uh, in spite of our, our, our lack of uh, diversity at the table, what is the, the true sense of, you know, kind of where we lost it, but how are we going to move it forward in order to serve more delicious food at the table? Um, well,
3: as an educator, I always start off by saying it, it's education. As chefs, you know, even though I am a chef instructor, by title I because I formerly teach people in school but chefs and restaurants are educators as well right so they have to have these items on their menu to educate their customers and so their customers are like well wow I had this really great succotash that contained these peas that were grown a hundred years ago and now this chef is bringing them back and also we have to get more involved in producing these items as well. Like, you know, we have to, even as black farmers or just black chefs in general, where we, we have to have a conscious decision to say, we're going to educate, we're going to purchase, we're going to support not only black farmers, but black producers as well to Educate our customers to encourage our customers to seek out these ingredients. So it's not a thing of, well, only certain people can get Anson Mills rice. Well, we know that's not true. You can go to the website and have a five pound bag. Delivered directly to your home.
2: Let me, let me, let me ask you a question, though. I mean, in, in this, and especially in this political format that we're in, though, uh, how do we uh, defend ourselves of being against uh, segregationists? You know that that we are saying that you know that black farmers like this, like that, that. You know, historically, we've always produced this food from everyone mm-hmm. or for everyone. But in the same token, that is not understood in our community, nor can our community necessarily afford a, a, a rice or, or, or a, a grit or this, you know, high caliber thing that we might only be relegated to things that are simple, quick, fast, and hurry, because we have to work you know, exponentially more hours than, than anyone else. How do we do it as a community of chefs, either instructor or restaurant tourists in order to bring that back. And I do believe your book is a catalyst for it, but I want to hear your, your, your take on
3: that. Uh, well, you, you mentioned one key word, I mean, community, we, as a community, we have to get together. And as you said earlier, it's not looking at, uh, he's Caribbean, he's this, she's that we are all one, right. And we have to come together as a community. And as far as, like defending ourselves Um, for me. I don't necessarily, it could be defending myself, but I don't look at it like that. I look at it as, Hey, I'm a chef. I'm here. I'm educating you. You could take, take the knowledge any way that you want, Mm -hmm. but we still have to have the conviction to want to continue to pursue work with our community, bring these ingredients back serve these ingredients and then of course you mentioned a key thing as far as the availability or even the being able to afford right because you mentioned now you know you can't buy oxtails you know for less than i mean even some places ten dollars a pound Mm -hmm. for something that was you know you can go to the (laughs) store and get a 10 pound bag and pay two dollars for or even the same thing with rice rice you know carolina gold and we know it's 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 not cheap, um, so we have to. And you're right; we have to. I mean, figure I mean, out. Gold,
2: gold is in the name, you know. Yeah. So. <laughs> right.
3: But we have to find a way to bring it to a level playing field where, as you say, anybody can can purchase Carolina gold and not feel like you know they're they're spending, they're taking away from paying the bills to take care of their their families because they want this this rice right and you go to the store we all go to the store and i mean even me sometimes when i look at the price i'm like i don't want to pay that (laughs) (laughs) i know that i could have gotten this 100 years ago for a dollar a pound you know as opposed to 10 or even with carolina gold or even you know grits and you know and it's just it's once again just going back to us coming together as a community and demanding, you know, these products and demanding that they are affordable and they are produced in a manner that doesn't hurt people or take advantage of people. Those are things that that we need to do. And as chefs and as what we're doing right now, having this conversation, you know, hopefully people that will listen to this will, you know, take this as a catalyst to, to, join in and say hey we we got to figure this out and let's let's get together and not be so separated as a community a community is not separated community is together and i think sometimes and you we've had this conversation um before that sometimes we get so we segregate segregate ourselves
2: Mm. and that
3: Mm. is Mm. that is something that is very counter it's not very it's not it's it's not counterproductive you can't say, Hey, let's get together. But then it's like, well, no, I'm not going to deal with this person. Right. It just makes no sense. Like we got to come together and we have to shake down the egos and really, be committed and say, hey, you know, we want
2: all of us. shake food. down the egos, but we're in the ego-driven business. That's, that's, that's in I know, energy. and
3: it's very hard. It's very yeah. hard. You know, it's very hard to to do that. I mean, and, you know, I, I, and I can, you know, attest for that. I mean, we all have egos and we all you know, want our food to be the greatest food and, you know, we we have these competitions within ourselves to, you know, well, my dish has got to be better than her dish and his dish and and you're right and so that is that is probably going to be the hardest thing is to kind of get rid of the ego part of it and i think once we can maybe keep our egos in check uh, maybe it'll never happen that all our egos will go away but <laughs> if we can keep them in check and really look at what the bigger picture is it's like this is not about me or you this is about our community this is about getting these ingredients to in the hands of people that for one, who couldn't afford them, who now can afford them through our working together as a community?
2: I, you know, community, uh, commonplace, common table, uh, nope. those things are inherently uh, taught, you know talked about or even taught about in our culture. And then the other side of it is separation, uh, being your own person, being your own chef and things like that. And really those delicious dishes um, You know, one that I, you know, that you talk about, we know we talk about rice grits, uh, even okra, you know, where okra, you know, has this uh, bad output until you look at commercial restaurants where they're doing fried okra and things like that. But you say if it's in gumbo, it's, it's this way, but it all comes from the same area. You know, in your book, uh, and we only got about maybe five, six more minutes here taste the state, South Carolina, signature foods, recipes, and their stories, where was that commonplace? I mean, you talk about black and whites uh, at an important time, and I really want to talk about that briefly so that we can actually give the listeners a pathway moving forward. Where was the common table? Because I don't think the common table was just about a pig and someone getting ribs, someone getting pork chops. Uh you know, it was the responsibility of people cooking delicious food that made that table common.
3: No, I agree. I agree. I mean, it, it always boils down to making sure that the food is delicious, no matter what it is. And for me, no matter who cooks it. Right. We we keep talking about community. And unfortunately, when <clears throat> we look at we look at black and white of course you know there's there's some segregation there but we also know that you know we all cook this food like we we all come if you live in the south or you were born and bred in the south you you cook this food whether it was you know someone that is white that's frying okra as opposed to someone that's black that's making okra soup right Mm -hmm. we still we still use okra um And you mentioned, you know, the, the, the affinity for okra and we write it in the book that, you know, the affinity for okra comes from people from the South, mainly because of, you know, it's coming from Africa and, and being here and growing here in the South and the, the affinity to not eat okra is definitely more in the North because okra Mm -hmm. doesn't really make it to the North, um, as much as mean, it makes it there. My grandmother... I, mean, I grew up. I grew up in New Jersey. She grew up in North Carolina. She she made sure that I had experience with okra, um, but it's not that prevalent in the north, and people don't have an affinity for it because they think it's slimy. But once again, that's part of the mystique of okra, and you know, there's there's ways of combating the 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 sliminess of the okra, but you need it. You mentioned go- oh, um, gumbo. You need mm-hmm. that you need that viscous texture right. to as make a fire. Right. Yeah, a you, fire. yeah, you need it. So, you know, I, I just think that we you're right, we do have to come to an understanding that this food is just as, you know, elegant and technique driven and delicious as the other types of food that we hold near and dear to our hearts, you know, in, being a chef instructor you know we focus on French culinary techniques because that's the way it's always been <clears throat> but you know I think it's time for you know culinary schools not necessarily not only in the south but culinary schools across the country to really start to embrace southern food, soul food and and, and bring it to a level where it deserves to be
2: and you, and with ingredients such uh, such as okra um, when you think about it from the, um, the versatility of it, that you can uh, you know put it in gumbo as a thickener, uh, you can fry it crispy, uh, you can uh, grill it most certainly you know being grilled, um, you can uh, you know remove the outer green and make uh, uh, you know pudding or something like that with like tapioca you know with those things. I remember Corey Lee in his Benue cookbook. Uh, you know, he, he had a dish, I think it was a crab dish, where he finished it with sliced uh, thin okra on top as a crispy texture, mm-hmm. uh, really to bring those things together. But uh, why do we have such polarization in it when it comes from Seoul uh, and moving forward? And just understanding that when we think about something about red beans and rice, red beans and rice is a, you know, Haitian dish that went to Louisiana and came up north. That, you know, okra is an ingredient that we uh, might shun. But when you think about commercial restaurants, the uh, Applebee's of the world and places like that, they have fried okra on the table. Where do we lose our soul or our identity in dishes like so? Um,
3: I think ugh, it's it's probably it's more, mainly for me, it's all about the kind of the stigma like the stigma of okra and it's slimy and people don't understand as you say the versatility you know you can you know dry it and grind it into a flour and and use it in baking and or breading i mean it's, it's so many people just don't don't understand the versatility of it and i think um <clears throat> you know food gets or specific ingredients well they they come with this specific stigma where it's it's not seen as something that is for one delicious two that's very versatile and that is a part of who we are as people i mean you could say the same thing for for fried chicken mm, Been to a, you know and a, a people laugh about you know going to work and and not wanting to eat you know specifically black people not wanting to eat fried chicken in front of white people well white people eat fried chicken too. I mean, I, that's what I, I mean, I, I think that's right. Right. Well, everybody mm-hmm. eats fried chicken and we know that no matter where you go, there's something fried, some type of fried animal. So I, it, whether it it's chicken me. rabbit or
2: yeah. anything else, you know, Lewis and Clark, uh, Clark uh, expedition, you know, showed us that their versatility from frying rabbits to, to, to chicken yep. all the way across the board. So,
3: and I don't understand where people are like, oh, you know, I'm not going to, you know, fried chicken. Well, okay, yeah, any, everybody eats fried chicken. They don't want to admit that they eat it. And, you know, you can also say the same thing for for watermelon, for, for s- certain people, specifically here in the South, you know, the stigma of, of you know, what watermelon
2: was specifically during.
3: Juneteenth, right? I mean, I mean, watermelon grow
2: starts growing at that part of Juneteenth. I mean, when so if you're ashamed to, you know, see that during Juneteenth, then it's like, well, I mean, that's when the real true watermelon season starts. Yep. Uh, we only have about one more minute here, and I really appreciate it. we're on Soul by Todd Richards, uh, Chef Todd Richards, with Kevin Mitchell, one of my my closest and longest friends, and he wrote a a, a terrific book. I mean, you don't pick this book up, shame on you. Uh, Taste the state, South Carolina signature food uh, foods recipes and their stories. But Kevin, this last minute here, really, you know, how do we make uh powerful, more, not more relevant, because I believe that uh, relevancy is a fleeting way of thinking. How do you make it permanent and delicious? What is your, you know, what is something in the book that people say, I got to cook this year over year, whether it's Easter, Sunday, Thanksgiving, uh, uh, Christmas or holiday season? what is that one dish uh, that people need to taste in order to make sure that they have the experience of your book?
3: Um, well, we write an extensive kind of chapter on purlieus, right? One mm. these one beautiful one pot rice dishes that can include meat and or vegetables. I think, you know, that particular dish specifically here in this area um is a very important dish to kind of keep in your in your repertoire so to speak because it it speaks to so many things that are very traditional and true to to our culture right we know rice makes the south what it is specifically charleston we know that slaves were only given one pot right and they had to make a meal that was sustainable for a family Mm. and how best do you do that by making a one pot rice dish a purloo you know you we can also mention in um louisiana you know we have jambalaya right And, and it's a dish that transcends throughout all cultures, right? We have purloo, pilau, uh, pilaf, uh, (laughs) jamalaya, paella, right? right? All these beautiful one pot rice dishes that for me encompasses the culture of enslaved African and African-Americans, you know, and also, you know, to go beyond that, it's, it's looking at, of course, Hop and John, which we all know we eat during, the new year or the coming new year, right? A very beautiful dish and it has a really great story. So, you know, to connect yourself to, if you want to connect yourself to South Carolina, I guess through this book, always look at these purlieus, hop and John, red rice, you know, all these, all these beautiful things that stem from this one pot and to understand, you know, what, what our people went through during that, time
2: in history. I, 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 oh my goodness. We could probably be here all day. Like I'm talking <laughs> about rice. Everybody knows me. I have an affinity love for rice. Um, you know, whether it's in, um, you know, uh, savory form, um, uh, mash form. Uh, mm-hmm. I love coquettes made out of rice. Uh, I like sweet rice, uh, sushi, uh, which is uh, something that we didn't have time to even discuss here. You know, pickled fish and rice, which is not just exclusively for sushi, it's for a lot of other cultures. But Kevin, please tell everyone uh, where they can find you on social media.
3: Um, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Chef Scholar. Um, and also for email, Chef Scholar at gmail.com.
2: And uh, where can they find your book, most importantly, because I believe that all the recipes in there, uh, people are going to want to know how to cook it, hopefully after after this episode. Yes. Um,
3: They can go to the uscpress.com, and then they can put Taste the State in the search engine. It is available for for presale. It it will be released in bookstores on October the
2: 12th. I want to make sure everyone understands USC because we are in the Southeast University of South Carolina, yeah. not USC, uh, University <laughs> of Southern <Yes>. California. <laughs> uh, yep. You know, uh, they both play college football, uh, but, um, uh, one is a different type of cuisine, another one is delicious. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, uh, my great friend, Kevin Mitchell, uh, Chef Kevin Mitchell, an instructor, all around great guy, for uh, being on this uh, season two, uh, first episode of Soul by Todd Richards. And you are listening to Soul by Todd Richards. sold by Todd Richards, is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio, supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio.